Boy, what a challenging song. Wow. Well, good morning, everybody. You know, it's good to be among friends, and uh, it's just a joy for Kathy and me to be here once more uh, to share the Word of God with you. If you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and we'll read a few verses there. And if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the Word? Matthew chapter 6. And verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you with these words written by Matthew many years ago, in which your Spirit inspired. And Father, we do pray that we might hear what they have to say to us. Bless your word, and may your people be blessed also. Thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our subject for today is focusing more clearly on life. I have told myself, and perhaps you also have, I need to see things more clearly. I need to see all of life through the lens of Scripture. I'm a very amateur photographer, and I bought my first good camera over 50 years ago when our first daughter was born. I wanted to be sure to capture, you know, for posterity, those cute and unforgettable moments as she grew up. And one of the first things that was impressed on me was the need to properly focus the camera. We didn't have those newfangled things that we have today. You know, I have shot a lot of fuzzy pictures Pictures that were distorted because they were out of focus. And my first camera was an Argus C3. Maybe some of you might remember that camera. It had a split image system in order to determine distance. You know, uh, you took the images there, they were split, and then you had to bring them right next to each other. And that uh, determined whether or not you could get your picture in focus. 
I didn't always match the uh, split images exactly, and the result was, as you could guess, the picture was out of focus. In the first half of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus focuses on a Christian's spiritual life. Things like giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. In the second half of the chapter, Jesus focuses on our public life. Matters such as possessions, food, drink, clothing, ambition, and the like. Now, I don't want to press a distinction too hard between the first part of the chapter and the second half into a kind of sacred-secular dichotomy. Because for the Christian, everything in life ought to be a matter of the sacred. And nothing should really be secular for us. And one of the emphases that Jesus makes in Matthew 6 is precisely that point. That God is concerned with every area of our life, whether, it, whether we call it private or whether we call it public, religious or secular. People complain if someone wears their religion on their sleeve, and maybe you've heard of that in these last several months. They say that a person's religion should be private. Privatization means to be politically correct. You know, don't share your faith with someone else. That's your affair. That's your private business. And I say, excuse the indelicate word, baloney. In every sphere of life, we have the insistent call of Jesus asking us to listen and to pay attention. And his call to us is that we be different from the popular culture. Jesus calls us to be different than the hypocrisy of the religious. Verses 1 to 18. And there's a lot of hypocrisy there. But he also calls us to be different than the materialism of the irreligious. Verses 19 to 34, which is part of our passage for today. In verses 1 to 18, Jesus seems to have in mind the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And in our passage, verses 19 to 24, it is the value system of the Gentiles that he renounces. It is in the area of values that we're hearing a lot of discussion about today. It's in that area that I want to have a clear view. And life presents us with a lot of split images. And I, for one, want to have my focus sharpened. In our passage for today, which we read earlier, Jesus sets before us a series of three alternatives and asks us to focus sharply on that which is life-producing, life-satisfying, life-peacemaking. And these three alternatives are these. First, the choice of where we bank. Here on earth or in heaven? Where do you bank? 
Where do you bank? Secondly, there is the choice between light and darkness. Or, where do we fix our eyes? Or on what do we fix our eyes? On what are we focused? Where is our focus in life? And thirdly, the choice between two employers. Who is your boss? Who is your boss? Is it mammon or is it God? So we have the choice between life goals, obsession with personal security or with God's rule and God's righteousness. And these three alternatives present us with choices that do not allow us to sit on the fence. And the question, however, is how does one make a reasonable choice that so that our life remains in focus. And Jesus, in our passage for today, helps us to choose well. He sets the false against the true. He puts light versus darkness. And then we have the choice of the, of the transient or the temporal versus the everlasting or eternal. And he invites us to make a comparison and then see for ourselves. Let's look at these three alternatives. The choice of where we bank. On earth or in heaven. You know, from the text, when you read the text, it would seem easy to make the decision to put all our treasure in the bank of heaven. You know, what fool would want to put it in the bank on earth? Who would want to place their treasure where it could be destroyed or stolen or where it could lose its value by rusting? Why would one even consider storing up treasures on earth? Why bank there? Obviously, Jesus was aware that treasure on earth has a strong allure. It has a tremendous pull to it. And we all, I believe, are aware to what lengths a lot of people go to in order to accumulate treasure on earth. Quite a number of people have risked their lives in order to get treasure on earth. We in California are aware of the gold rush and the promise of treasure in the earth on earth. A few years ago, CBS had a news item of the 5,000 Microsoft millionaires who had been given stock options some 10 to 11 years before. And that stock had increased in value 28,000%. And the program spoke of these people being in an enviable position because they of their large treasure here on earth. We all, I believe, have heard of a few people who have lost their treasure on earth and have committed suicide as a result. Tragic, because it seems that they had lost their reason to live. Well, 
Why would anybody store treasure on earth? And I'd like for us to think together about that for a few moments. Every human being is an investor in something. Every human being is a treasurer. Every human being, whether consciously or subconsciously, is looking for an investment in some sort of security against the uncertainties of tomorrow. Tomorrow is uncertain, by the way, if you don't already know that. And so we look for security. And so our government has a social security program. We all want better health insurance. We have insurances on our cars and our houses and all kinds of insurances. I heard the story of uh, Vice President Cheney who had a, uh, a contract with Halliburton. And this contract said that uh, he would uh, have certain stock options and he could exercise that option anytime he wanted uh, to buy stock at a certain price level. That uh, particular uh, contract is in some kind of uh, blind trust. Uh, now, Vice President Cheney doesn't know whether that stock is going to go up or whether it's going to go down. So what did he do? He bought a $15,000 a year policy to ensure that the stock would remain at a certain level. Now, all of the proceeds, incidentally, unless you think he is a money grubber, are to go to charity. All of them. But he bought a policy to ensure his investment Treasure on earth is something tangible. I can see it. I can count it. I can handle it. I touch it. I can show it off. Treasure on earth seems to give people a sense of security, which may not truly be there, but it gives us that, you know what, I can handle the gold Krugerrands, you know, or whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, but uh, it gives us that kind of security. For some, treasure on earth is a source of power. If you have enough money, you can be elected to almost any political office. You can get people to do what you want if you give them treasure on earth. People think very highly of treasure. In that wonderful play, Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye, one of the main characters, sings a song. If I were a rich man. If I were a rich man. And the song goes that he would build a staircase leading up to nowhere. Just for show. You know, if you were a rich man, he goes on to sing, people would fawn on me. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? 
He would have a seat at the eastern gate. People would ask him questions that would turn a rabbi's eyes. Because if you're rich, you really are wise. Tell you, if I were a rich man. And then he goes on to say, what would be wrong if all I had was a small fortune? Huh. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said, do not, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth? What was he forbidding? Scriptures does not forbid private property. The Eighth Commandment implies private ownership on property when it says thou shalt not steal. In order to steal something, it must belong to someone. Right? Saving for a rainy day is not forbidden. Scripture praises the ant for storing food in summer that it will need for winter. And we are told to observe the ant and be wise. Well, what is it then that Jesus forbids us? Do not lay treasures for yourselves. Many commentators will concentrate on that phrase, for yourselves. And argue that the point of Jesus' words here are, is selfishness. And I think they have a partial point, of view, point to make. But I'd like to suggest another way of looking at that text. I want you to notice there that the writer uses the phrase for yourselves in both clauses. Both with treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. And I think what Jesus is saying that the problem is not that we're selfish necessarily. I think that he is saying that the problem is that we're foolish. We're foolish. It may be okay to have treasures on earth, but be wise. And Jesus then tells us what the way of wisdom is in verse 21. He just doesn't say be wise and then, you know, what in the world does he mean by be wise? He lets us know uh, what that means. A rightly focused person will understand that one's heart will follow the investment. If our treasure is on earth, you know where our heart's going to be? It's going to be on earth. If our treasure is in heaven, you know where our heart's going to be? In heaven. Our, deep, our deepest affections are going to follow our treasure. Please get that point. Our deepest affections are going to follow our treasure. Jesus reminds us investors that there is only one safe investment. And it is in the things of heaven. The things of earth are profoundly insecure. So what are these things of heaven? Jesus doesn't exactly tell us in the text that we read, but we do have it in other parts of Scripture. I believe that treasures in heaven refer 
to something here on earth whose effects last for eternity. And they may be things like the development of a godlike character. You know, all that we take to heaven is ourselves. And we can take a godlike character to heaven. It may refer to some activity in helping others find eternal life in Christ. If you find another, that person will be in heaven. It may be the refer to it may refer to our using money for Christian causes. It may refer to helping the poor. And I'm sure that you can all add to these kinds of treasures. Where are you banking? The second focus I want to mention briefly is the choice between light and darkness or where we fix our eyes. It is through the eye that the body finds its way through life. And the argument seems to go something like this. Just as our physical eye affects our whole body, where we go safely or whether we stumble and fall and hurt ourselves through life, so where we fix our eyes affects that life. Just as a good eye gives light to our bodies, so does our ambition to serve God, add meaning to life, and throws light on everything we do. If that's our ambition, it'll throw light on everything else that we do. Also, as blindness leads to darkness, so a bad eye plunges us into moral darkness. It makes us intolerant, ruthless, and deprives life of ultimate significance. It's all a question of vision. If we have physical vision, we can see what we're doing and where we're going. So, too, if we have spiritual vision... If our spiritual vision is correctly focused, then our life will also be filled with purpose and drive. In the book of Job, Job says that he had forbidden his eyes to look lustfully at a woman. He had forbidden his eyes. It's what we look on. It's what we focus on. If our vision becomes clouded by the false gods of this world and we lose our sense of values, then our whole life is in darkness and we cannot see where we're going. About four or five years ago, I was having my teeth clean. And I don't know why I remember this particular incident, but I do. And the hygienist asked me what I thought of the Clinton administration. <laughs> that was a loaded question. And I responded by saying that it seemed to me that where there was a lot of smoke, there usually was a fire. 
And she knew what I meant. And the hygienist responded and said, yes, but it didn't make any difference to her whether there was immorality or whether there was lying or whether there was obstruction of justice as long as the country was prosperous. So I said to this dear lady, I said, moral values are not important to you, are they? Ethics don't mean much to you, do they? As long as your treasure is doing well. But what do you think God would say about cheating and lying and immorality and hypocrisy, etc.? She said, well, I guess he wouldn't like it. And she knew. She knew. Materialism, greed, lust, the bank here on earth, hypocrisy, lack of compassion, all of these rob us of our sense of values and our life seems to be plunged into darkness and we cannot see. So we become anxious and we don't feel very secure. We stumble, we fall, and we hurt ourselves. Our destiny is obscured and we have lost our way. And the great lesson here is if our spiritual focus is correctly adjusted so that we can see clearly, then our life will be filled with purpose and fulfillment. Where do we focus our eyes? What do we see? Do we see clearly? Or do we see uh, with a little bit of fuzz? The third focus relates to the choice between two employers, mammon or God. And the big question is, who is your boss? Or who or what controls you? The word mammon, and I know that many versions of the Bible translate this word money or wealth, is because in many parts of the world, money and wealth, many or wealth, is indeed a mammon. And the word mammon means that in which one trusts. It's very interesting that you picked that song, trust. And the word trust, trust, trust was repeated over and over and over again in that uh, song that we first sang. Mammon means that in which one trusts. If we trusted money, then that's a mammon. And a mammon is an idol. And I'd like to suggest three questions you can ask yourself that might surface the mammon in your lives. Question number one that you might ask yourself, what is it that gives you hope in life? When you look out into the future and to the year 2005, what is it that would give you hope? In 2005. If you answer, because I'm a U.S. citizen, or because I have a good stock option, or because I have good health, or because I'm young, if your answer is anything other than the living God, then that answer you have given has the potential a being, a mammon, or an idol.
What is it that gives you hope? Question number two. What is your greatest delight? What is it in life that gives you your greatest joy? My grandkids give me a lot of great joy. And so do my kids. They all do. Sometimes uh, the job feels pretty good. I can say I've had all good jobs. Before I went to the Lord's work in 1972, I had a good job. And then to serve the Lord in the Bible school there for 12 years was a great joy. But if our answer is anything other than the living God, then that answer has the potential of becoming a mammon or an idol. Question number three that I want to ask, and then that'll be all. What is it that scares you? Of what are you afraid? Do you fear rejection? Do you fear losing someone in your life? Do you fear criticism so much that you would... Uh, that uh, you'd lose your face, lose face? If that is the case, the mammon in your life could be reputation. i got to spare my reputation. And that becomes the all in all for some. My reputation. Some people say that God is the most important person in their life. And if this is so, then God will be the one you will trust in for your hope in the future. God will be the one who will give you the greatest joy in life. And God will be the one in whose hands you are glad to put all your concerns and all your worries and all your fears. We put them in the hand of God. Everyone serves some sort of God. I don't know too many songs that Mr. Dylan wrote or sang. But I do know one that I understand he wrote. And he wrote this one. Everybody got to serve somebody. Everybody got to serve somebody. Or going to serve somebody. I'm not sure which is right. It's either God or going to serve somebody. Everyone serves some sort of God. But the great principle Jesus announces is that we cannot serve two gods at the same time. Impossible. I was taking a law course at UC Berkeley. And one day the professor opened the, uh, his lecture by saying, you cannot have two masters. He was talking about contractual relationships. You cannot serve two masters. And wow, I think I lost the rest of the lecture because I was thinking of this passage here. You cannot serve two masters. Here's the crisis. The decision to decide every day whom we will serve. 
It's either or, not both and. Because both and is impossible. Cannot do it. To try to serve two masters in, in a business relationship is illegal. And Jesus says it's impossible. Either we serve the living God or we serve men. And God can be served only with an undivided loyalty. And this is simply so because He is God. And He said in Exodus chapter 20, You shall have no other gods before me. It's one of the commandments, not a suggestion. And the great lesson here is not how long a treasure will last, but the issue of comparative worth. The worth of God and the relative worthlessness of the other. Three different angles, three different focus points, three decisions, and they're all interrelated. And I think Jesus puts them in the proper order in the text. I think he is telling us that the decisions we make about our treasures come out of our vision of reality. That is, where we fix our eye on. And our vision of reality comes out of the relationship we have with God, whom we have chosen to serve. In closing, I'd just like to say this. God asks us to make choices. He asks us to focus more sharply on the things that really matter in life. Where do we bank? What draws the attention of our eyes? Who is our boss? May the Lord help us to live our lives in focus. And in the next one minute, or minute and a half, I want to present one last challenge. One of the most important choices that a person can ever make. And the choice I'm referring to is the choice of perishing, of dying, or having eternal life. Life or death. And in the Old Testament, I think in the book of Deuteronomy, the writer says, I've placed before you life and death. Choose. Choosing to perish is often done through neglect. It is done through unbelief. It is done because there is no real understanding that all of the things on earth are going to perish. And the greater alternative is eternal life. Eternal life with God. Being in the place of love. Being where God is. Being a member of God's family. Having a future. You know, when you put the two together, they're not worthy of even being compared because there is no comparison. And so I just like to say to any here who have not yet made that, well, if you haven't made a choice for God, you've made a choice already for, for the other. And the scripture backs that up. So I'd like for you to. 
make that choice for God. For eternal life. For hope. For a future. For a joy. For happiness. For being a member of the family. You know, make that choice today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Father, for the teaching of Jesus there on that mount where he gave that wonderful sermon. And set before us, as in our passage today, these are three choices, these three alternatives of where we bank, of light versus darkness, of who is our real boss. Father, we pray that if there are any here who have not made the choice for you, that they might do so today. Bless this congregation of your people. Dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you that you go with us as we leave. Thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.